11FS offices in London for episode 131 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the currency cold war, tokenizing your future income, and when, when, or when will we see the digital dollar? All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Paolo Ardonio. Did I say Arduino? Yeah. Arduino. Damn it. I should have said it like the, the computing heritage. Um, the, you're the CTO at Bitfinex. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've been quite busy at Bitfinex. For those people who live under a rock, just remind everybody who Bitfinex is. It's one of the leading crypto exchanges. And uh, I'm also have the luck to serve as a CTO in Tether, that is the leading stablecoin. Very exciting. I'm sure lots of questions about both the sides of those at the moment. And um, you know, kind of especially with some of the news this week, it'd be interesting to get your perspectives on some of those. Sure. And of course, making their blockchain inside debut is Abbas Ali, who's head of digital identity over at our friends at R3. How are you doing, Abbas? Very good. Thanks. And we were just talking about um, dealing with the doom and gloom after your move from New York. Not used to the UK winters. No. Just uh, learning the hard way. Yeah. I wouldn't worry. We're going to brighten it up because there's a lot of blockchain news. Um, but before we get into uh, the blockchain news, I've got some other news. Uh, 11FS is in the final for not just one, but two categories in the 2020 British Banking Awards. Boom. Uh, last year, we took home Consultancy of the Year, and we want to take home the trophy again this year, so you can help us listeners. Head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020 and vote for us to win Consultancy of the Year and Pioneer of the Year of the World. We appreciate it. Thank you. If you're on your commute, that's bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020, and we love you. All right, let's get on with the news. First story this week comes from Coindesk.com, and former CFTC officials have ramped up a push for the digital dollar with an Accenture partnership. Um, so the former CFTC chairman, uh, Chris Giancarlo, a.k.a. Crypto Dad, um, and, and Lab CFTC director Daniel Goldfein uh, want to take the dollar digital, and they're not waiting for the Fed. Um, they, the three are forming the Digital Dollar Foundation and working to design a push for potential U.S. central bank digital currency. The new not-for-profit organization has a multi-part plan with the goal of making dollar transactions as seamless as text messaging. Uh, so, interesting story. Abbas, what did you think when you saw this? I thought it was interesting uh, to see uh, some of the folks you mentioned uh Taking charge in leading the U.S. digital dollar. Yeah, no, no. I think I think it's it, who is it? Like so, um, Chris Giancarlo had been crypto dad for quite some time. So it's an interesting, almost like institutionally led, but private, but not for profit right. reaction to Libra and uh, everything that's happening there, to China's DECP, to the, you know the, the sort of stablecoin fever among central bankers at the moment. And I guess, Paolo, you know, kind of being so close to Tether, you guys were one of the very first to really do this at scale. How do you look at developments like this? Well, I think that is um, is normal that U.S. wants to try to do something uh, like uh, what ch- um, the Chinese government announced because China is looking towards having their um, digital yuan or they are, well, they announced it uh, I think a few months ago, they are really ahead of the game. And um, the European Central Bank said that they are 
uh, as well interested in looking into these possibilities. France is really interested. I mean, I think that the uh, U.S. Uh, is um, clearly not willing to remain um, outside of the game. Yes, so. it's, it's interesting. So what, what are some of the possible benefits? Because, I mean, there's a reason people are using Tether and, and uh, yeah, there's a reason it was built. Sort of, do you think people want some of those same benefits and, and what would you say those are versus sort of the, the non-digital dollar? So, um, well, dollar in general is digital because, I mean, <laughs> banks don't have their uh, really big uh, stash of cash. Of in, cash yes, yeah. right. So it's the problem is the transport layer of dollar that is um, the traditional transport layer of dollar is completely um, broken and slow. And uh, there are plenty of different protocols among different regions of the world. So you want something that is... Uh, more suited for um, uh, the um, recent world, mm-hmm. and uh, you want something that uh, is faster, maybe uh, a public or private blockchain, but something that uh, allows, uh, in a simple way, different parties to as- access the, the transaction information. So I, I definitely see how this should be done by a central authority. I think that will make the life of everyone easier if you deal with SEPA, if you deal with uh, all these different standards to send wires around is is so terrible. I mean, oh, yeah. T plus one settlements are something that should not happen in, in our in in our world, right? And T plus one is you go to make the payment and a day later the money lands. And, yeah. and sometimes it takes an awful lot longer than that. And I, I wonder how us, you know, there's, there's definitely... As I sit back and look at it, I imagine if I'm I'm in a government, I look at the different players in this market like Libra and and of course what China are doing with DECP. Do you think what you know having a former CFTC official come along with an Accenture partnership does that feel different? I I, I think it's it's definitely uh, going to be interesting to watch how it plays out. I, it doesn't to me honestly feel that different. It seems like another really? private. Yeah, it it seems do you like think an, the optics are different in the sense of like hey, it's Facebook and they just did Cambridge Analytica and we're worried about privacy and, by the way, they won't let us hack phones. Um, my opinions, by the way, just FYI. Um, versus uh, kind of uh, former CFTC official does a not-for-profit with Accenture. So I, I think it's definitely going to advance the conversation, but I think unless you have buy-in from regulators or the government itself you right. know, directly, it's not really going to transpire anytime soon. So it's, it's definitely a positive. You know, It's taking the industry forward. But I don't think we're going to see any meaningful impact uh, in the short term, at least. The help f- help the future-proof greenback allow individuals and global enterprises to make dollar uh, payments in dollars irrespective of space and time was the tagline. I mean, does Tether not already do that? And do they not need to just adopt Tether? Would that not be easier for them? Or do you think what they're doing could contribute to that community? Um, you're referring to um, Giancarlo. Yes, uh, yeah. Chris's... I think that um, there is a big interest of having um, an owned um, bank account where all the um, the digital dollars are are sitting because that uh, generates an interesting amount of um, of interest over time, right? Mm. So uh, we are seeing competing um, uh, enterprises to tether. We are seeing USDC from um, Circle, uh, Gemini Dollar, and others, right? 
uh, everyone understands the, the potential of uh, the growing monetary base and the potential business uh, behind it. So that is why other groups are looking to this as well. Uh, more, I, I believe that um, everyone wants to do the same thing. I believe that if you look at the smart contracts that are powering um, the, the different stable coins on, on Ethereum blockchain, for example, they are pretty much similar. They are doing the same thing. Everyone has his own secret sauce in the sense of where yeah. the money is is, uh, is is backed, in which bank, in which jurisdiction, uh, what it is the, um, say, safety of, uh, well, the what is the um, regulatory regime and things like that. But uh, pretty much they are solving, this, uh, everyone is solving the same problem. Mm. It's interesting that lots of people have come to the same conclusion that this is a problem worth solving and how they're doing it is is, is differing. The, how do you think about the who's doing it part of that conversation? Do you think there's anything about the fact that this is a former regulator doing it that changes the conversation? Or do you, do you think that um, you know, there's a credibility conversation there? No, I have to agree that it will, won't change um, the complexity of seeing um, U.S. having a digital dollar until the government will choose to do that. Yeah. So it will push the discussion forward, but it won't change the, um, their probability of succeeding. Having a not-for-profit doesn't help them succeed. And, and actually, is there something from the opposite end of the spectrum, which is maybe even just building the thing and getting people to adopt it might be might be an area because there's a lot of learning there versus kind of announcing. Abbas, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a positive step for the industry, uh, I think. But uh, uh, and anything, any additional uh, development in the space is going to lead to adoption. But uh, again, you know, I have to echo uh, my earlier statement that uh, until we see meaningful buy-in from governments and regulators, it's not going to lead to any kind of uh, uh, digital US dollar. Well, speaking of governments, the next story comes from Coindesk.com, and this is about the currency Cold War taking center stage at a pre-Davos crypto uh, confab. So it's roughly 250 people gathered at a crypto finance conference in St. Moritz last week. Lucky them. Um, so Multicoin Capital's uh, Beijing-based partner, um, Mabel Jiang, said uh, China's goal is to leverage the rise of cryptocurrency, including both domestic Bitcoin mining and state-issued digital currency, to supersede the dollar. Uh, according to Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum, um, there's a sense that emerging economies could actually benefit from pegging a stablecoin to a basket of currencies in a way that they can't currently do if they issue paper money. So smaller countries are looking at, wow, there's something we could get out of out of um, the, these things as well. And then, of course, some advocates of sort of digital central bank currency believe that uh, blockchain and DLT could even make sanctions more effective. Um, so many global powers are looking to assert that their currency is an important um, reserve currency. Uh, a digital dollar apparently allows for a more scalpel-like approach to sanctions. Of course, for the unfamiliar sanctions being um, the global governments of the West decide there is a bad country like Iran, and therefore they issue sanctions, and therefore any US dollar payments must be checked and checked again before the banks can move money there. But actually, that's a very paper-based and manual process, and do you really know who the money's going to is, is, is always kind of interesting. It looks to me almost like an ink block test, if you've ever seen one of those. If you're right. familiar with those, yeah, the Rorschach test, right? Rorschach yeah. test. Yeah. It's kind of like you, you hold the thing up and what you see in that ink blot says more about you than the ink blot itself a little bit. I mean, how, how do you think about this? 
uh, about the inkplot? About the the different views that are emerging. Do you think there are um, a current? Is there a currency so, cold war, and is central bank digital currency in the middle of that? I, I I would tend to agree, and especially the statement you made about China trying to take a dominant position uh, and and using this as an opportunity to do that. And you know, uh, I'll give you an example uh, personally. So I'm originally I'm from Pakistan, and I I tend to go back every year, and I've been going back once a year for about thirty years now, and. Uh, traditional payment service providers such as PayPal have have kind of shied away from that market, partly because it's not mature yet, but also because there's uh, uh, sanctions and sanction violation concerns and regulatory pressure. And uh, we're seeing China and Alipay specifically make big inroads there, and they've recently announced a huge partnership with the local mobile payments company to develop a blockchain-based remittance service where they're going to bypass the actual uh, traditional payment rails. So I, I do think that that China is definitely uh, looking at this as an opportunity to assert themselves on on a global level. Do you think we'll see uh, Paolo a a tether version of the Remimbi anytime soon, or do you think there's demand for uh, somebody to build something like that, or will it be is it is that going to be impossible given the Chinese kind of level of state control in these sorts of things? So the good thing is that is already there. So mm. uh, Tether issued a couple of months ago Tether Remimbi offshore. That is, you know, that uh, as a external um, entity outside of China, mm. well, we have to uh, only deal with the CNH. Yes. That is the offshore version of the Remimbi. Yes, of course. So for the unfamiliar people who don't work in FX markets, there's two versions of the Remimbi, the offshore version and the onshore version, and that's how they manage some of their currency controls. So there's a the, you're working with the offshore version. Yeah, yeah, and we see that there is a demand uh, from um, from traders because there is, a, of course, interest in hedging uh, positions, hedging the risk, and uh, um, there is um. There is an increasing concern in uh, with uh, this uh, geopolitical, um, uh, you know, risk that uh, eventually having multiple stable coins in the key currency like euro, uh, RMB, and dollar, um, it will help hedging. It will help uh, preventing. Um, this uncertainty. That's why Tether is going also to publish uh, soon uh, Tether Gold, mm-hmm. because all this instrument will be used for for hedging and for diversifying their risk. And if you can move that at the speed of you know kind of almost near instant, that's going to be and and you can tie that as part of the transaction. That's hugely compelling. How do you think about sort of the being a, being in this as sort of almost happening above our heads, these these geopolitics playing out. How do you think that impacts businesses trying to build stuff in this space? Because you guys are on the front line trying to build you know, kind of technologies and tools, and you must come up against. You, know, you must watch all of this play out. D- is it just a case of heads down and build, or or does it change what you try and build a little bit? Well, of course, you have to keep your ears open to traders and for, uh, to whom will use uh, the technology that you are building. I think that um, most of our products are really trader-driven, uh, and uh, also we are working on the Tether side. Are uh, we are working on the idea of uh, using Tether for remittances? Mm-hmm. We are seeing an increased adoption of Tether from uh, merchants, from uh, um, from uh, service providers, and uh, uh, VPN providers are using Tether now, wow. and uh, travel uh, agencies are using Tether. So it's it's increasing because. Uh, you know, no one wants to um, hold uh, cash and they want to move, if they hold cash, they want to move it really fast rather than having it sitting in a bank account 
while with Tether, you know that you can send it to any exchange and, and exchange it really fast for Bitcoin or for whatever other cryptocurrency you want. Are we heading towards a world where a bit like how um, not all money is represented by cash in a vault, not all money would be represented by um, deposit numbers sitting on a, on a database in a bank somewhere? Is, yeah. is that decoupling a bit, do you think? Well, I um, while I'm uh, leading an exchange, I still believe that uh, everyone should hold his own keys yeah. as much as possible. Um, of and course, by this you mean their private keys yeah. for their wallet so that they own their own assets in that sense. Yeah, I believe that it's important that people understand the potential uh, of um, keeping control of uh, uh, Mm -hmm. their own finances. Uh, I I believe that it gives a sense of power that was impossible till a few years ago. So everyone should really understand how it works. And they they should be using exchanges, but uh, that for the amount of um, capital that they want to exchange, at the moment, they can want to use eventually to uh, to trade, right? They should not use exchanges as banks. Mm. That is not the purpose. Interesting that there's that, that, there's that contrast. There's a really interesting thing from this CoinDesk article as well where Sheila Warren from the World Economic Forum said about the Chinese digital currency. Um, it's not actually for people who live in China because they've already got WeChat and Alipay and they effectively have digital money movement for, for consumers already. It's another global settlement currency, um, including for development country, uh, developing countries around the world, which the Chinese are friends with. So it's part of the One Belt, One Road right. uh, perspective. Abbas. Yeah, so we know the Chinese are spending billions uh, on the One Belt, One Road initiative. And for them, uh, building trade corridors in the region is part of their long-term strategy. So if they, f- if they see an opportunity there for the uh, uh, to create their own currency to power that, uh, uh, that trade corridor, I-, I think it's definitely something they're going to be focused on. It looks a lot like the Marshall Plan with Europe in the sort of post-World War II era, right. um, and the, which then led to the dollarization of the world. Well, it was already sort of headed that way, but... There's there's similarities here for sure, right? Um, so, how do you think about this with a, a digital identity hat on? Do you think that um, kind of there's you know if you control the money, you control the data? Like, what what was your perspective on it? So, to us, and this is not just my view, but uh, we see payments and identity go hand in hand, especially when you're talking about uh, digital tokens and currencies. Uh, identity is a key component. Without, especially when you're transacting in. Uh, in a regulated environment, you have to know both parties on both sides of the transaction. So personally, at at R3, we're looking at, you know, how can we facilitate the existing uh, payment regime by uh, empowering it with digital identity? Mm. It's going to so, be a key part of everything. Yeah. And of course, China and India and many other places do have national digital identity, but uh, it's so, so different in so many different countries. I'm going to move to the next story because we could talk about this one forever. But th- this one really caught my attention. I don't know if you guys saw on the block. The NBA Spencer Dinwiddie is set to roll out a tokenized investment platform. So this is a Brooklyn Net player who said last week um, that his tokenized investment vehicle was set to launch in spite of the NBA's threat to ban him from professional basketball league. Um, the bond will be issued with the help of a security token platform, Securitize, who many of you may have heard of, whose CEO Carlos Domingo announced the partnership on Twitter. The scheme would allow him to instantly collect up to $13.5 million off his $34 million guarantee three-year contract, and token holders would then receive a monthly payments in the next three years with a 4.95% base interest rate. Dimwitty's plans have faced oppositions from the NBA, but if plans go ahead, it will be the first bond being managed by a digital transfer agent operating on the Ethereum blockchain. 
I mean, is this genius or foolish, Abbas? You know, I read that. I found that one particularly interesting, and I, I, I tried to answer that question earlier, and I, I don't think it's either or. Yeah. Uh, a bit of both. Yeah, a bit of both. Yeah. How, how about you, Paolo? What did you think when you saw this? Uh, a bit of both. You can imagine that uh, if uh, this succeed, I mean, I think that uh, just thinking aloud, the U.S. has some problems with student loans. Students could even um, create a tokenized version of their future earnings mm-hmm. and uh, sell it on chain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting. Um, you have to try out things before uh, to open the road for something bigger, maybe. Something interesting about yeah. celebrity culture and, and kind of going going up against some of this stuff and, and all of the, the history with the, the U.S. sports system and how sports stars are funded. I was going to say this has the potential to open up the floodgates, right? Yeah, because yeah, that that whole sort of um, a, the power of the agent in U.S. sports is is phenomenal, and this is right. potentially democratizing that. But Correct. also, you know, think about Spencer's relationship with the fan community and their investment in his growth and success. Like, how how do I take part in in economic success uh, with a small amount of money? Usually, the the system, unfortunately, at the moment is set up around the concept of sophisticated investors are allowed to get exposure right. to risky asset classes. Unsophisticated investors remain locked out because they they may lose all of their money, and that has much more impact on them than it does on rich people. But the consequence of that is financial exclusion. So as a result, we have a whole bunch of people who can't benefit from success, but also are locked out of losing all of their money, but maybe not have any. Interesting that he's trying to change that. Yeah, and I just came up with a startup idea as you were talking, so I, <laughs> I'm going to be looking very closely at this space. Ooh, you came up with that idea as we were just talking Correct, right yes. now. <laughs> You've just come up with, like, you heard that first, people. Like, in, in five years when Abbas is the CEO of, like, Next Big Thing, it happened right here. There you go. Um, so uh, I'm going to move us to uh, a quick ad read. So time for a quick chill. Of course, this episode is brought to you by our friends at R3. Um, developed by R3, the Corda platform is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability ability. Uh, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, or industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial is available now at r3.com. Head on over to check it out. Alrighty, on with the show. Um, this story comes from PR Newswire, and this is about Gemini launching captive insurance company uh, with a custody insurance solution with lending brokers Aon and Marsh. Um, so the cryptocurrency exchange and custodian Gemini today launched Nakamoto Limited. Uh, so this is their own captive insurance company. Uh, it's licensed by the Bermuda Monetary Authority to insure Gemini custody. Nakamoto, the world's first captive to insure crypto custody, allows Gemini custody to increase its insurance capacity beyond the coverage currently available in the commercial insurance market. Um, the insurance solution also gives them $200 million in insurance coverage, the largest limit of insurance coverage purchased by any crypto custodian in the world. Um what did you think when you saw this one, Paolo? Does this just seem like the the continual evolution of the infrastructure in the industry sort of professionalizing, or was this was this a bit of a surprise? Well, I, I believe that um, um, unfortunately exchanges are seen as banks, and uh, I think that um, exchanges hold 
really enormous amount of funds that most of the time are not directly using for uh, used for trading. So while mm. more and more people get used to be involved in in, uh, in in crypto and start holding crypto, they will get used to deposit crypto on exchanges. So exchanges will need to get a proper insurance because the amount of funds can easily be above five, ten billion dollars. So I think that uh, while I understand why this is happening, I, I still would like to uh, work and I would, I'm pushing the companies I work for to educate users to uh, keep control of their assets because that is the, the, the core of our um, industry. It's interesting that the, this whole concept of uh, crypto custody and crypto custodians, you've seen a bunch of market players really head in that direction in the last few years. Um, and what you're saying is kind of sure, but also like part of this is self-custody. And there was a there's this whole conversation about institutional self-custody and what does that mean? And and can I, can I ensure that myself? And am I taking on new responsibilities as a trader or as an investor or as a market participant in doing that? And do I have the skills to do it? And, and do you see that from, from some, of the, some of your customers, some of your ecosystem? So um, our customers are pretty um, uh, early days. So we are, our customers have really good experience in holding their own funds. Uh, also, we teach them how and we help them to understand um, how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when um, in 2016, uh, we had a security issue. Only if you, a small portion of the funds were actually uh, used uh, for active trading. So you still, it's important that people take care of their own funds and understand how to take care of their own funds. It's just pure, you know, if you are in this industry, I mean, we, I, I don't like to turn this industry into a normal banking business yeah. where we start, we have start raising uh, uh, limits of uh, what we hold in custody, like 100 billion, 200 billion. I mean, that, that of course will bring money, but it's not the purpose of why Bitcoin was born. So I'm, I'm kind of an, uh, uh, going out of, uh, um, let's say, out in a different direction uh, from our uh, business competitors. That's but interesting. I'm, but yeah. No, I find that super interesting because uh, you know, a lot of people believe that uh, crypto custody and institutional grade custody was the key to bringing in um, kind of institutional investors. But what you're saying is actually education might be the key. Education is the key. So we, there are two, uh, two aspects of this. Of course, we are holding uh, enormous amount of funds for uh, our uh, institutional uh, traders that trade on on, uh, on Bitfinex. Um, soon we will, um, it will be even more clear because we have a series of big announcements regarding institutional. Uh, at the same time, we um, we want to educate our users, especially the retail users, to understand how to properly manage their funds because mm. that is, uh, I think that... Uh, the, the the key part is uh, having people understanding what is a private key, what is um, uh, what is the concept of, of uh, public and secret key, and and so but, on. But I wonder how much though, like how many how many of us really care how Netflix works? Do I need to understand its security model to use it? And how much of that is actually user experience layer? And I, I think from a digital identity standpoint, right? right because like. 
if I had to teach um, most of my family that had to use public key pairs, uh, public and private key pairs, in order to use most of the services they use, they'd never use them. Exactly. And I was going to say exactly the same. I think education is one component, but user experience is extremely important. And I'll give you an example uh, or, You know, for uh, online onboarding and digital onboarding platforms today, we're seeing a 40% drop-off rate generally in most of these online bank uh, onboarding interfaces. And part of the reason is because uh, the user experience is not very intuitive. So people kind of drop off midway. And I, I like your point in most of the partners we're working with in developing digital identity applications, the end user doesn't care about how things work, whether it's even on a blockchain or not. All they want to know is how do I solve my problem and what's the fastest way I can do that. Completely. I, I think that's interesting, though, that um, you mentioned a moment ago, Paolo, that um, we are seeing the um, kind of not just at the consumer side, but at, at the institutional side, the general uh, kind of view is it, whether it's with custody or not, uh, the bigger institutions are coming into the market. Does does I think this is kind of reflective of that, but are you seeing that or is that just something people keep saying in the hope that they show up? Well, um, I believe that uh, 2020 it will be quite different from 2019. So in 2019 and 2018, everyone was waiting for institutional money uh, with the hope that the um, institutional money would stop the um, the, um, the crash of the market, right? <laughs> but um, seems like um, in in the first days of uh, of this year, we are seeing increased interest from really big funds um, to define a really big fund, and you don't have to name names, but like how big is really big? Um, we are seeing from fifty to uh, three hundred million dollars funds. Okay, so we're not dealing in the billions. No, not yet, but. Um, we will get there. I mean, yeah. you need you. It's really hard that Fidelity starts opening an account tomorrow and say, "Okay, yeah, we yeah. want to commit one or two billion. But, but but on that point, like Fidelity has a crypto custody solution. They've announced their launch in the UK, so they're coming at it almost from the other end of the spectrum. It's going to be interesting to watch that market play out for sure. Um, and and actually, speaking of which, um, next story comes from the block, and this is about Fidelity hiring a Bitcoin mining engineer to scale its operations. Because Fidelity, one of the world's largest asset managers. Um, uh, according to a job posting on the website, are hiring for the role to help design, build, and maintain the infrastructure to run and scale its Bitcoin mining operations. Hmm. The role requires candidates to have three or three to five or more years' experience in DevOps engineering alongside knowledge of databases such as SQL and MongoDB. Um, Fidelity actually began mining Bitcoin and ETH in 2014 and reportedly is a profitable venture. Uh, in 2017, the CEO of Fidelity said that the company started mining for educational purposes but now makes pretty good money out of it. Fidelity are full of surprises, Abbas. Yeah, I was surprised to read that one, especially the fact that it's a profitable venture. And I was yeah. curious to know where where is it based, actually, and who's 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 funding this? Uh, yeah, who's, well, I mean, what's their the electricity bill like? Being privately yeah. owned, right? You, the, the, their disclosure requirements are quite different to, to most others. What did you think when you saw this, Paolo? I think that uh, uh, I believe is it's fair and it's normal because I there is one interesting point to that. That is, if you mine. Um, your own Bitcoin, they are virgin Bitcoin. And you can find buyers that will buy a higher price mm -hmm. Bitcoin without history. So you can you can sell it above the market. 
That's interesting. I never thought of that, but actually, because Bitcoin, all Bitcoins come with like their entire history, um, some of those can be tainted and come from various places. I, I didn't think of that either. I wonder uh, why they would want to pay a premium, though. If you are, let's say, if you are a bank that are that is approaching to um, to the crypto market, and you hear, you hear that uh, Bitcoin is for criminals. Then you say, okay, but I'm still, my clients want to buy Bitcoin. So the best way is to get Bitcoin that non, don't have any trace, that are a virgin. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I never thought of that. Well, and that, you yeah. think about it. So that what's really unknown about Bitcoin is, um, you know, it, it's really clear that you can see every transaction ever. Right. But whose responsibility is that under the travel rule? Because under the travel rule, any transaction above $1,000, so less than one, bit, you know, one eighth of a Bitcoin, uh, somebody must have identified both ends of the party. But if there isn't somebody at the other end of the transaction, Bitcoin transactions can be, and in most part are truly anonymous, then who does the identify, identification? In a, in a bank-to-bank transaction, bank number one would go talk to bank number two. If there is no bank number two or if there is no institution on the other side, who's responsible? So bank number one just worries and goes, well, it, the regulator would probably expect me and it's kind of ambiguous. So I'm just going to stay away from that and I'm going to take these bitcoins with no history because my clients are asking for it. That's super interesting. Good insights coming left, right, and center. Um, do you think that um, you will see more of this type of hiring? Um, and what do you look for when you're looking for tech talent in this space? Would would your job spec be looking for three to five years in DevOps engineering just for, for somebody in the mining space? Or would you be looking for somebody um, kind of with, with specialist Bitcoin mining uh, experience and, and kind of deeper infrastructure stuff? So we, um, we only hire um, senior developers um, from five to ten years of uh, of experience, we don't care about any uh, degree or whatever. They just need to be amazing developers. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, we have only 25, 30 developers uh, because the, the the bar is really really high. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, the the best the most important skill for me is that apart the quality of of development is the fact that they can be really good remote workers. Oh. Because the company doesn't have any uh, any office, and um, they so communication and skills in writing and um, writing clear sentences is really important. Yeah, the power of that when you there is no sort of place to communicate and and writing clean code, I guess that other people can read and understand and and kind of being able to document that. And then understanding of security and um, in general from front end to back end and uh, DevOps is is of course core because you are managing the funds of your customers and so it's like uh, your your own baby. Mm-hmm. You you need to be um, super careful and uh, I, I just want people that put everything else, um, this thing above, uh, this, this duty above everything else. Interesting stuff. Well, I mean, if you're listening for Delicy, there's uh, there's there's some things to throw into the the job advert for sure. Um, all right. Um, next story comes from the block, and this is about crypto asset manager Grayscale posting its best year with over six hundred million dollars of investments um, into uh, what they're doing. So their newly released 2019 digital asset investment report, the firm amassed six hundred and seven point seven million in investments last year, exceeding the cumulative amount from 2013 to 2018, and bringing the total brought into $1.17 billion. Um, the report also showcased the degree of interest from institutional investors, 
In 2019, 71% of Grayscale's total investment figure came from institutions, primarily hedge funds, which marks a steady increase from 66% in 2018. So, Paolo, this is kind of what you were saying earlier, that the interest has almost shifted from retail to to institutional. Yeah. And uh, how, how does um, kind of Grayscale play in this market? They're obviously, you know, kind of slowly becoming the behemoth nobody talks about. Like, it's it, they're kind of there and... Um, People talk about Galaxy because of Mike Novogratz. People talk about Gemini because of the Winklevoss twins, and there's a celebrity effect. But actually, Grayscale have quietly, steadily been building quite a portfolio. Um, where do you think they scale versus some of those other names that may may get more PR? Do you think um, there's something interesting that other people can learn from these guys? Well, one thing that I like is that uh, is um, uh, flying low and and uh, work hard. So it seems like um, unfortunately most of the time. In, in all industries, and uh, unfortunately also in ours, uh, being public and uh, um, doing a lot of marketing means more than building. Yeah. I prefer seeing companies that focus more and more on building and uh, keep their head down and, and uh, create, um, create technology or create uh, potential for investment or, or mm-hmm. uh, fund companies. So I think that... Uh, you you don't want if you are doing the, your job right you don't want people to talk a lot about you you just want to focus on on doing your own business absolutely um abbas there's, there's an interesting question from our producers here in, in the show notes that says um why the heavy investment in crypto when you know, price for the last two years has really been moving sideways at best you know w- what do you think is driving the interest so i i think it's finally people are uh, uh, uh at least in our view, the, we're seeing that the uh, hype cycle is kind of wearing off and you're seeing actual real development taking place now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a lot of the uh, stuff that was mainly POCs and pilots moving into production environments generally in the crypto space. We're also seeing a lot of the uh, regulations start really come through and people, uh, uh, a lot of governments making stronger statements in the space. So I, personally, you know, I, I always, uh, me and a lot of people thought that the institutional money is going to come in last year and we were keeping our fingers crossed. But I think maybe this year is the year where we're seeing a lot of that, the uh, uh, legitimate players uh, developing exchanges, custodian solutions, and we're going to see a lot more push towards uh, institutional money coming into the space. Paolo, do you think that sort of PR sort of um, gray cloud, sorry, to grayscale, I don't mean it like that, but like the, the that kind of, there's always been this question about, you know, as you said earlier, um, Bitcoin, oh, that's just for criminals, isn't it? Do you think that's changing, especially uh, with Libra out there now sort of being the boogeyman? I think that, uh, well, recently we saw news about uh, Bitcoin still being considered something for, for criminals. And mm-hmm. that is, I believe that um, uh Competition that is um, that is traditional finance will always try um, at least for a few years more to 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 make uh, Bitcoin look like a, a bad thing for for the for the masses. But eventually they will succumb, and mm. there's there's no way that uh, that Bitcoin will fail. And it moves up from sort of um, family offices into hedge funds, into larger funds, then into maybe even to asset managers. It's going to be interesting to watch that sort of play out. All right, some stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, Anchorage announces Anchorage Trading, a new brokerage service, and Merkle Data Acquisition. Ooh. Um, the block Chainalysis traced $2.8 billion of Bitcoin being sent to crypto exchanges by criminals last year. 
wow, okay, maybe that's where it comes from. Um, <laughs> and uh, But the fact is you can trace that 2.8 billion anyway, um, which you can't do in financial services as easily. Uh, the next web.com, LinkedIn, blockchain beats AI and cloud computing for hottest skill in 2020, according to recruiters. That's interesting that given where we are in the hype cycle, it's still, still such a required skill. Uh, now it's time for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the one and only Ryan Selkis at 2 Bit Idiot on Twitter. Shout out, Ryan. Um, so he says, unreal results from the Bitwise Financial Advisors survey. Apparently, 76% of fielded clients, uh, so 76% of financial advisors have fielded questions from clients about crypto in the past year. 58% of financial advisors say better regulation could spur them to invest. Only 6% are actually investing client funds uh, into into crypto. So we're still so early. The interest compared to the amount of investment, is there's a huge gap there, Abbas. Exactly. And I saw that tweet. I found it very interesting. I've shared it with a couple of people, actually, uh, especially the fact that there's only 6% actually investing in the space. And I wonder how much of that is because uh, the, there just aren't enough uh, uh, uh platforms for them to kind of engage in the market. That access route isn't there and and that sort of uh, that persistent interest from clients hasn't gone away even though the price has just moved sideways for two years which makes do you, do you think then that the interest from consumers and or investors is no longer just price driven it's it's like I want exposure to the future Paolo. I believe that I believe that uh, uh, circular economy is something that will, will happen as well in the next um, one or two years uh, the idea. Define circular economy for me. So is uh, the concept that what uh, is in crypto stays in crypto. So I earn in crypto, I spend in crypto, I use crypto to travel, to buy food and so on. There are some people that live that way now, but they're, they're outliers, right? They're, they're very unique. So recently we um, integrated BitRefill, uh, that is uh, uh, probably the most prominent gift card, uh, crypto gift card uh, website, and uh, allows to get um, gift cards, buy gift cards with your Bitcoin uh, through through Bitfinex with your. Um, so you can buy f- of, for Amazon, from for Netflix, for Google Play, iTunes, whatever. So and you you can for for travels you so I, I believe that is the future. I believe that people start to understand that um, in, that eventually the price of Bitcoin will will uh, rally like crazy. So why yeah. even if it's three thousand or six thousand now, yeah, yeah, it changed it changed momentarily, but that it will not be matter much in, uh-huh. in two so years you, time. So you think that people are still really out there to speculate, and that, that there's a there's an assumption that the uh, the crazy times will come. Yeah, and uh, well, there's the entire discussion about halving and, yeah. and so on. So uh, priced in, not priced in, and but I, I think that uh, for uh, while I re- uh, read Twitter, it's it's clear that um, most of the people believe that uh, Bitcoin will be quite higher at the end of this year, if it's not at the end of this year, in two years, three years. But power of uh, religion. Uh, th- <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, listen, we're up against it from time. So that actually wraps up this week's show. And we could talk about this stuff forever. Um, this podcast, of course, uh, listeners, is brought to you by 11FS. And we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation and indeed reshape the very fabric of financial services with both product and service offerings. Um, where can people find out more about you, Paolo? Um, Twitter slash Paolo Arduino. Paolo Arduino. I like it. And uh, Abbas, how about yourself? Uh, Twitter. Probably is best or LinkedIn, I guess. 
Thank you so much. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, uh, or you can email us podcast at 11FS.com. Uh, big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura Petrick, Hannah, Olivia, and, of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider in the next couple of weeks. All right, bye for now.